This episode of the Podular Modcast is brought to you by Recovery Effects and Devices. Quality handmade effects and modules paying homage to classic, synth, and effects designs while innovating for today's studios and musicians. Hello, my name is Tim Held. And I'm Ian Price. Welcome to the Podular Modcast, where we attenuate at the altar of modular synthesis. All right. Hello, Pod Mod Bods. That's what you guys are called now. Today's guest is Mark Wiedenbaum, and uh, this was a really exciting get for me personally because he has been such an influence on me as an experimental ambient electronic music producer. Mark runs Disquiet.com, which is an excellent, I don't, it's hard to explain, it's just an all around awesome site to visit if you're into ambient electronic music. He has a group called the Disquiet Junto Group, J-U-N-T-O, um, for for people who uh, want to you know sharpen their skills and and get weekly assignments on different types of tracks to make. Um, and in lieu of a patch challenge this week, I actually did uh, the 333rd weekly assignment, half evil because it's half 666, and that will be at the end of the the episode. There's also a video for that on our YouTube page and you can listen to it on our SoundCloud page. I'm going to start adding um, the, the, the different patch challenges to our SoundCloud and we're going to try and start videoing them and getting them on YouTube. So yeah, more cool content coming soon. We're going to skip dates this week because we gave so many last week and there's really not much new to add to it and a lot of them are still relevant. So uh, check out last week's episode for some cool dates of not just Seattle area um, modular events. Um, another little tidbit about today's guest is he wrote the 33 and a third uh, book on Selected Ambient Works Volume 2 by Aphex Twin. Now, if you don't know what the 33 and a third book series is, um, I suggest you check it out. It's, it's pretty great. And a few days after we recorded this episode, um, the book got licensed for Japanese translation. So that's that's pretty exciting stuff. It's uh, It was a, a highly influential album, if you know it. And if you don't, I, w- I suggest checking that out as well. Um, and Mark did kind of some, like, not really a book tour, but he did he did some readings, um, had, had held some events to, to promote the book when it was new, and he had some some people come and share their stories on how that that album influenced them and then also had some musicians play um, music that was kind of inspired by that and actually the music that you have been listening to through this whole intro and what you will hear on throughout uh ian and i talking here in a second is from marcus fisher now this isn't the music that he played at the event that was inspired by um by apex twin but uh I just checked out some of the stuff, and I really like it. It's some some live recordings, um, and uh, yeah, check out his Bandcamp page, Marcus Fisher Bandcamp. So before uh, we get into Mark and I's chat, um, Ian and I are going to share some some stories of our our experiences with Aphex Twin, Selected Ambient Works Volume Two. Yeah, well, yeah. Let's do a little uh, story time, and you and me. Let's yeah. chat. Let's, let's chat. Let's chat it up. Uh, Selected Ambient Works Volume Two has a level of importance uh, to me. I'm sure it does to many people. I feel like there's been many times that it helped me out on a personal level, and it's something that I um, have a lot of respect for. One could say that you could write a book about it, just like Mark, this week's guest, did. Mm-hmm. And good. There yeah. should probably be a few more books about it. I used to listen to Rhubarb and Lichen on repeat when I was staying up late and unable to sleep and having trouble. I would uh, listen to those and just let them take over, but I really felt like I leaned on that album at times, and um, shortly after my grandfather's death, I mean about 30 minutes after, uh, my mother and I were sitting in a room with his, his dead body and trying to talk about it. It was an odd event. It felt like um, there was sadness, but it was also kind of a 
a new horizon he had struggled for a while, and um, we we went to my car, and I drove my mother home. I'm an adult. She's an adult. We haven't experienced a death together as adults. Uh, so I put on Selected Ambient Works, Volume 2, and it was a very odd and surreal drive for the next hour. Um, we were talking about memories of my grandfather's life while hearing in the background. <laughs> but I feel like I cannot hear that album without feeling some of the calm and closure that I felt that night. And it really is a stunning example of something that can punctuate your life in different ways. It's one of those albums that... Um, that doesn't change how you feel, but can accent it, accent pretty much any mood. Yeah, it's funny you said that. So when I when I was emailing back and forth with Mark about this and just kind of discussing the album, um, I, I mentioned to him that I had gone to the dentist earlier that day, and I decided that hey, I don't like going to the dentist. I'm gonna pop in my headphones and I'm gonna listen to Selected Ambient Works too, um, and just focus on that and try to use that as my 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 zenith or is that the right word my focal point um i don't think zenith is the right word fetish yes that's the word um no i was i was kind of used that almost as my mantra to to go through my dental work and um what was funny is at first i I thought this this wasn't the right choice this was maybe a bad choice (laughs) because it was i had the bright light in my face and a stranger with his hands in my mouth and and uh, you know it was it's a, it at times a very dark album and I, I told I told Mark about that and he he said you know so many people have so many different experiences with it and some people think it's really dark but he he said that he didn't think it was particu- particularly dark and I hadn't thought that until I listened to it in that context and then now listening to it after um, it it doesn't it's not as scary I don't you're know not, it's, you're not scared anymore I'm not scared anymore I'm, I'm glad to hear that. Tim. <laughs> So yeah, that, that's those are Ian and I's selected ambient works volume two stories. I think Ian's is better, but <laughs> all right, we're about to get into this episode, but I have to warn you that we had some uh, technical difficulties with the uh, recording. Him being in San Francisco and me in Seattle, um, we're still trying to figure it out. But there were. There were sections of my audio that were just so crackly and nasty, they are unusable. So I cut them out, and then I did a little voiceover explaining what I was talking about, and then we get back into our conversation. It's a little disruptive, and I apologize for that. Enjoy. No one here, I think. Let's see. It's, there it goes. Recording. You can still hear me all right? Yeah. Is it just the two of us? Is your co-host joining us? Um, unfortunately, he had he was sick for the first part of this week, so he couldn't take today off. Um, but I'm actually sitting in his house with his little with his 14 year old pup here. So um, <laughs> he's there in yeah, spirit. He's sorry he could. Yeah. Um, God, and I just got to do this really quick at the top. I have these. <laughs> There's this little sound bar thing with these cheesy. Cool. Uh, yeah. Take me after the um, ball game. Right? Yeah, I've got intro, outro, drums, and ballpark. That's that's a weird mix. Um, so yeah, I'll, I'm gonna give like a, a an introduction on you know who you are and what you do, but I feel like that could be a series of podcasts in itself. So yeah, do you want to just like maybe <laughs> just like briefly um, kind of just go over the many hats that you wear sure. in the wor- uh, with your work in the world of music oh sure are we recording now or prepping for it uh yeah we're recording now. oh he's telling me um so <laughs> uh, well i it's easiest to talk in terms of chronology so i started out as a music critic and i worked full-time as a music critic for a long time for about seven years or so and then i got a job online which inevitably led to me again being a music critic by overseeing a network of music critics um and then I continued to write freelance after that. I never worked full-time as a music critic after leaving that company, but I continued to write freelance for lots of companies, then for lots of publications. And then over time, 
I ended up um, doing lots of work in sound that were apart from what's traditionally considered music criticism. Started collaborating a lot with musicians, wrote a book, uh, teach a class, uh, do music supervision. It goes in lots of different directions at that point. Okay. Yeah, it's like I said, I was I was trying to just do some research and I was like, where do I start with this? Oh, and uh, because it is a, a modular podcast, I definitely want to get to that. But I feel like we uh, we got to we got to talk a little bit about the 33 and a third book that you wrote on um, Aphex Twins Selected Ambient Orcs Volume 2. Yeah, sure. Um, and there are a lot of there's a lot of information on how that came about. There's quite a few interviews with you. So I don't want to ask a bunch of uh, questions that you've already answered that people can find. Um, but I just want to say, I just finished it and I, I enjoyed it more than any other non-fictional piece about music or a musician. Um, and I think it's because of how interactive it was for me. Mm-hmm. So I would, you know, I would select the track that you mentioned and read it along, you know, read along or listen along as you described it. And it seemed like, especially with the, the track windowsill, that simultaneity concept which you actually mentioned later in the uh in the book kind of popped into my head and i was wondering like how how deliberate that was and did you put on the tracks as you were writing to try to to time out the sentences for the listener <laughs> yeah. to like hear what you were describing yeah you, you might be referencing the uh the, the theory that it's um it exists to be played in various circumstances like along with a film or along with itself playing two sides at once no i i um i would say that that uh, the it may connect back to how I wrote it, which is just that um, from the day I started writing it to the day I finished writing it, each day I chose a different track from the record, initially working through in sequence, but eventually focusing on ones that I was going to be writing about and just listen to that track nonstop for the course of the day. I mean, I'd, of course, I occasionally took breaks to listen to the things I might be writing about or just took a break in general, but I would listen to a three-minute, seven-minute track for hours at a time. That's how I listen in general, uh, but it's also what led to the book. So a lot of those pieces were written um, under the influence, as it were, of the track at the time, though though there was a lot of editing involved too. But uh, no, no, there was certainly not, I was not uh, timing it to the to the beat of the, the drum, as it were. Well, it must just be my, my reading pace must just, uh, you know, perfectly sync up mm-hmm. with uh, your sentence structure and his uh, song structure, because it, it was really cool. You'd mentioned, you know, like, and then this happens at this part, and then that would happen in my, you know, my right ear. You'd say this thing that would, this thing would disappear or switch from right to left, and then that would happen. And it was just like, oh, wow, this is, this is a very fun experience reading this. Well, one cool thing about writing that book was that up until that point, I don't think there'd been any 33 and a third books that were about albums that were not heavy with words. So I think mine and the Jay Dilla book that came out right around the same time were, the, I think, were the first two books. Um, there might have been one or two earlier, but that had essentially no vocals at all. I mean, there's some on the Jay Dilla record, but there's none on mine with the exception of, you know, um, some garbled stuff. And so, I mean, I think in a way the book lends itself to having background music more than maybe some of the other ones did. It's hard to read to Devo as much as the Devo book is awesome. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was actually thinking about that because I have a hard time reading with, with music, with lyrics or, um, or with TV or really anybody talking around me. I have a, I have a hard time tracking mm-hmm. the sentences I'm reading. So this was, this was like a really cool experience to be able to actually read along with it. And oh, cool. I imagine like in some ways it could be a lot harder to write about that because you couldn't go off on, you know, for pages about what so-and-so meant by this lyric or, or whatever. Um, I guess it's a challenge, but that's a challenge I welcome because I, I actually listen to an incredibly tiny percentage of music that actually has any lyrics in it. So that's just that's just what I do is I just focus on the instrumentation. Um, yeah, so I, I understand that's a challenge. And I think it would be a challenge to people for whom lyrics are super important. But, um, but I actually don't listen to much music at all that has vocals. Like I have a pretty big collection of hip-hop vinyl, but the reason I have it is because I like the instrumental tracks. So, um, okay. so even then, yeah. it's the instrumentals that I'm paying attention to. <laughs> um, so... A, f- a few years ago, I did some. I did something called the Puget Soundtrack, and it's where here in Seattle we have um, uh, the Northwest Film Forum. They do a concert series where they pick a, a local electronic artist to rescore a, a movie that they like, and then perform that score live. Um, so I chose the movie Predator because it was like this huge influence on me as a kid, and um, it's one of my favorite movies, as cheesy as it is. Um, I worked on it for probably eight months, and I have not watched it or wanted to watch it 
since the night I performed it. And I'm wondering if something like that happened with you and this book. Yeah. Is, is that Puget Sound series the same one that Madeline Kokolis did the birds for? She did. Yeah. Uh, she was actually right after. Oh, that's super. Yeah. yeah. I've heard that. That was awesome. I really enjoyed, I think that's some of the work of hers I like the most. It was a really, really spectacular thing. I never of course saw it coinciding with the movie and I really should sync them up at some point. So, um, it's not that I got sick of it by any means. Um, but, but by the time I was done with it, a lot of what I liked about it initially had sort of been solved. You know, when I first started listening to the record, which I guess technically was before it was even released, because I was because I was privy to an advanced copy of it before it came out. It was an ethereal album, um, and the time before MP3s, we're talking 1994. It was uh, before the widespread availability of MP3s. It was it was very difficult to figure out where a track ended and another one began. Um, you know, even if you played it on a CD player, which would be um, have track track numbers and even um, even the the count of the timer on it, that was across the room because you would put put it on a stereo system. Um, so I would say that um, the short version is just that the record was really ethereal to me, even when what, 18 years later, I started writing a book about it. But by the end, I felt like I knew every nook and cranny of it, like I did the halls of the you know elementary school I went to. Um, so right. I didn't listen to it a lot for a long time after doing that, just because I'd, I'd, I'd spent so much time there. But, um, but I've been able to listen to it you know, subsequent to that. I mean, a lot of time passed, maybe a year or so before I could really listen to it again. But it still is very familiar in a way that it wasn't when I started writing the book. Like with with the thing with Predator, I, I it's not that I got sick of it, but I, I kind of I felt the same way. I you know because I'd watch scenes over and over again, and it's been a, it's been about three or four years now. So I'm or no, it's been almost three years. I'm thinking about seeing what it'd be like because I think that that experience would be interesting. Yeah. Um, uh, one good thing about the the music is that whereas with movies they're kind of these they're generally these singular artistic objects. I mean, there are remixes of movies and there's, of course, homages to them and so forth. Like, I wonder, were you able to watch the sequels to The Predator, even if you couldn't watch The Predator <laughs> itself? <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, Predator 2 is a little rough to get through. Um, <laughs> but, you know, the, the and the, the Alien versus Predator series is is delightfully cheesy. Um, I actually really enjoyed the, the Adrian Brody remake. But, you know, I, I enjoy all these movies on kind of that, that level that you could maybe enjoy, you know, something like Panda Express or something like that. Like, I know it's not good for me, you know, but it's one of those guilty, I mean, not guilty pleasures, but you know, you know what I mean. Yeah. With, with Aphex Twin, even when I couldn't listen to the record anymore because it had just become so familiar and I needed a break, the beautiful thing was that there was so much fan and professional reworking of it. So I could still listen to the Alarm All Sound version or the London Symphonetta versions of related tracks, or I could, you know, online there were lots of covers. And one thing that I took a lot of solace in is that every track on that record, there is a copy of it on YouTube, if not multiple copies of someone reversing it. So even if I oh, couldn't wow. enjoy the original anymore the way I once did, I could listen to them in reverse and really enjoy that. Well, that kind of makes me, that brings up the next thing I wanted to ask you. Uh, you, you went, you did like some some readings or some sort of book tour on it, right? I did. Or had some events? Yeah, I did. And you had people, go ahead. No, I did. Um, yeah, it was nice. I did sort of the virtual book tour, which is podcasts and, uh, and interviews. And I did uh, a pair of readings, one in San Francisco and one in Portland. And the Portland one in particular tied directly into the subject of your podcast, which is what got me into buying my first few modules. Now, you had people kind of come up and... and play music of their own that was maybe inspired by the album exactly. is that is that right yeah at both of the Very events cool. I, I i was happy that that some musicians um accepted the invitation to perform at the reading so we had a few in san francisco at city lights and then when i read in portland at powell's um several more musicians played and uh it was great in both circumstances and one thing i became really and and all with one exception i was very familiar with all the musicians work beforehand and in one of the cases it was someone whose music i liked but i wasn't i wasn't extremely familiar with them but in Portland, one of the musicians who I'd known the longest, in fact, of the group, probably the one I'd known the longest, was Marcus Fisher. And uh, Mark, he played uh, an, a set just before I spoke. Um, and I'd always enjoyed his music. I'd been following it and writing about it for many years. Um, and we'd even he'd, we'd collaborated on projects, and um, I knew him personally. But I'd never really seen him play his modular synthesizer that way before. And... I was actually distracted at my own reading to the extent to which I, I kept thinking, I've got to give this a go. 
And so the next day, he took me over to Control <laughs> Voltage, and I looked around. I didn't buy anything that that moment, but when I got back to San Francisco, I started spending some time on Craigslist, and looked around, uh-huh. and ended up getting a few um, modules from a very good musician locally, and uh, he hooked me up with a, a tip top, you know. Uh, rig and uh, from there it's i just get moving i love hearing people's difference they're the different stories of how they get attracted but it's usually it's kind of like that once once the hook's in the mouth it's like tunnel vision until you're there or something you know like well it was funny too because in the in the case of the fx twin book i had not um i had not i'd actively chosen not to write about how the record was recorded i i wanted to focus on how the record was received um the beauty of the 33 and a half series is that you don't. You're not writing liner notes in the sense of uh, technical liner notes, and you're not writing the history of the record in the sense of like a wiki. You can do that, but in the sense of like a Wikipedia, a very long, a thirty thousand word uh, Wikipedia uh-huh. entry. What you're doing is you're writing a book about a record, and you choose that perspective, and your book is accepted on on the uniqueness of that perspective. And so, I had actively not pursued. Though there's information out there about how the record was recorded, because that wasn't my focus. Um, I didn't want to dissect the pieces in a technical sense. Mm-hmm. So I think I was I was perhaps really um, hungry at that moment for exactly what I'd been avoiding for so long. And so when I saw Marcus doing exactly what I'd avoided doing, which is to be doing live the performance on electronic equipment with wires and knobs and cables and source material and mm-hmm. tertiary sound sources and so forth. It was really enticing, you know. Plus, he's he's an awesome musician, and the technology is quite lovely, and the setting was nice. So I, I it was just like kismet. I was like, tomorrow we're going to Control Voltage, and we're going to look around. <laughs> so, does, um, just for the listener, does Mark uh, perform under his name, or does he have a moniker that someone can go check out? Uh, his under stuff? his name, Marcus Fisher. Yeah, I mean, he's okay, he's, cool. he's been in bands and performed um, under un, with other people, but that's that's the name under which he records. Yeah. At this point in the conversation, I bring up how much Mark talks about Brian Eno's discrete music in his 33 and a third book. I mentioned that that album was a catalyst for me getting into experimental and ambient music and how his Disquiet Junto group was kind of the training ground after the catalyst and really influenced the way that I produce and, and make music to this day. So I, uh, I asked him to briefly describe it, and he's going to do that. Yeah, that'd be great. For anyone out there who makes music or who wants to, um, or is just interested in listening to what people make when they're in the process of making things instead of at the end of it, um, the, the Disquiet Hunter is a group that I formed in January of 2012. And it's every Thursday, I send out a compositional prompt to the audience of uh, participants. And then everyone then has until 11.59 p.m. the following Monday to record a track that is in response to that prompt. Um, it's 11.59 p.m. because when I said midnight, when we first launched it, people didn't know if that was midnight Sunday or Monday. So 11.59 p.m. Monday is 100% clear. Um, yeah, so every Thursday I send out a compositional prompt. Sometimes they're multi-step prompts that have a lot of processes to them, and sometimes they're uh, they're almost poetic, just depictions of an idea. Like this week that you and I are speaking, um, people are using lottery numbers as the seed, as the source for a track, and they can do whatever they want with it. Um, last week was even more narrative-driven in that I asked people to wonder what robots sound like when they're sad and to imagine what the ro- a robot playing the blues would sound like. Um, and here's your second interruption. Because we did not do a patch challenge on this episode, I I proposed to Mark that I do the Junto assignment for the week that we released this episode um, in its stead. And uh, he thought that was a good idea. And so he is now going to explain what that assignment is. So next week, this week's prompt is the 332nd. Don't let that number scare anyone away from participating. No knowledge of a previous prompt is necessary to participate. But this week's is the 332nd consecutive Hunto project. And next week is the 333rd, which is, of course, half of 666. So the prompt for next week is to make a piece of music that is half evil. Third interruption here. I, I talk with Mark a little bit about uh, how the the rules and guidelines for the week-to-week assignments has a lot of variation and how useful that was. And some of them are really restricted, and then some of them are totally open-ended. And uh, now he's going to talk a little bit about that. 
Thank you. That, that variety in projects is, is very much on purpose. I and mean, I think there's a lot of defining characteristics of the prompts, and there's also a lot of characteristics to how they how they unfold. And much as there's no need for anyone to have participated before to participate any given week, every project can be done with very few exceptions. Every project can be done the moment you read it, and there's no prep required. There was one project once where people were requested to record something at a particular time. And I guess technically someone who logged on two hours before the deadline would have had to falsify it a little bit, but otherwise every project is doable. There's no like do this, then the next day do that. It all can be done in the period of time you have allowed. But similarly, um, I try to vary the topics. And so any given week, the next project will either potentially build on the idea or actually diverge from it significantly. Um, and, I, and I like that. It keeps it fresh, and it, it also opens the hunt up to a wider number of potential participants, I think, because when you come to it, if you don't dig the project, there's a good chance you'll dig the next week's. Right on. And I guess I've been saying it wrong. It's it's a it's an HJ then, huh? Well, I, I don't know how it's pronounced because the word was, to my knowledge, invented by in, – in, in the use we have, um, the word was invented by Benjamin Franklin when he, in 1727, um, living in Philadelphia, formed a club for men that was uh, intended for philosophical discussions and, and uh-huh. described at the time as mutual self-improvement. And uh, he, he – my understanding is from a book I read about several biographies of him. I read the first one was by Walter Isaacson. Um, he he took the word hunto, and because he was a he was a very I mean even at a time where sexism was the norm, um, he was an extremely huh. sexist dude. And he uh, oh, Jesus. And he, had, he had I mean I, I admire the guy for a lot of reasons, but not how he dealt with his family. But in any case, he um, he he. My understanding is that he took the word hunto to be the male version of hunta like he couldn't accept hunta like he had to turn even hunta into a male word but but that period specific um gender relation stuff aside he um yeah he, he had this idea for this group for mutual self-improvement when i saw that word on the page it really stuck with me and then that that informed the formation of the hunto i don't even know if i would have created the hunto had i not read that book at the time i read it do you know how many active members roughly there are? I know people come in and out, yeah, but it varies widely. I know that there's currently 1,300 or so subscribers to the mailing list, and I know that every week we have between. I mean, we usually have roughly these days roughly 30 to 50 entries every week. Um, I think the lowest we ever had was about 10, and that was really only once. And the most we ever had was I think over 70. Excuse me, I can't remember how many, but it was just about. It was over 70, but I can't remember if it was 71 or higher. Um, was that the, maybe the one for the uh, – I know we did one for where you were going to write about it in Wired, I believe. Um, does, does that ring a bell? Because I remember my SoundCloud – on my SoundCloud page, I had a varying level um, of low numbers of plays on all my tracks. But that one that, that got written about in Wired was – Oh, Interesting. Was exponentially higher than all my other tracks. <laughs> I, I, at this moment, because it's early in the morning in California, I don't really recall it being written about in Wired, but it's quite possible it was. Um, we've been covered in lots of places. Bloomberg wrote about it. The Wire wrote about it. Other places, but you know, maybe it was the Wire. But I don't maybe know. I got that confused. Um, it was. It had something to do with video games. Um, I don't remember what it was. Oh, that's cool. I'll um, look back. But yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna talk about that in the intro. So, listener, if you wanna if you wanna join, um, I'll have all that all the links and everything available. So it'll be easy to find. Uh, super. And uh, so since it's a podular or a podular, <laughs> since it's a modular podcast, um, I, f- I feel like you're, you're a really, really interesting person to, to ask about, you know, what, what do you think? Why is it getting so popular and where do you see it going? Oh, I don't know how interesting I am, but I appreciate that, 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 uh, that bar being said hi, so I can fall short of it. I, I am, uh, I mean, popularity is, is something I've never been good at gauging. Um, so I, I'm not sure that's a question I'm going to give a particularly valuable answer to. I'll do my best. I think that, um, there's, I'll say this. I think that there's a, a kind of ruling opinion right now that, Modular synthesizers have become popular because as a physical object that you manipulate, they are very different from the increasingly 
frictionless world we live in where everything is a touchscreen and automated and AI mediated. Um, I think that's a ruling opinion, and I don't think it's an uninformed one. I do think, though, that in addition to that, and maybe even more importantly, I think that there is a, a visual quality to the way that ideas are connected in a modular synthesizer um, that that makes that tactile thing useful. I mean, lots of tools are tactile. You know, a MIDI twister is tactile. A, um, a keyboard is tactile. A guitar is tactile. But there's something about the way that different things interact through these cables um, that is visual in a way that a lot of other music-making systems is not. Um, and I think that you can see that as well in the... I would support that suggestion by taking a look in turn at the virtual modulars that exist, uh, whether it's reactor blocks or Audulous or um, VCV rack, which has really taken off. And I think that, you know, blocks is amazing, and I enjoy fiddling with it. But the way that blocks, for those of you who are familiar with it, blocks is uh, an implementation by React in Reactor of a modular-like system, but it's on your laptop. Um, and Audulous is a Macintosh and iOS-based tool that has a modular interface, but again, in software, it's very, it's beautiful in Audulous. And then VCV rack is, a, there's many of these, but these are the three I'll just mention. The VCV rack is the most recent of the three, and it is the most literal in the way that it's transferred the modular, physical modular synthesizer to your, to your computer. Um, and, and I think that they all have their pluses and minuses, but I think the popularity of VCV rack beyond the fact that it's free has been that there is something about that direct connection in the physical modular that is most evident in VCV rack and is the thing people respond to. Like Blocks is awesome, but the way it disconnected the connection between the tools from the way the tools are used to me is, is distancing. Um, and Audulous is awesome, but all the modules ultimately look the same because it's such a uniform, beautiful, I mean, radiant, but uniform visual experience, whereas VCV Rack carries over both the interconnectivity and the varied interfaces, and I think that's to its credit. And I think the fact that it succeeded on VCV Rack is proof that while the physical modular synthesizer is great, there's also something just about the interface of it that is really great. Sorry, I went on a bit, but I guess I have strong feelings about it. No, I, th I think this is important stuff. Um, I haven't actually messed with any of that. Um, I, I've, I've always kind of had a an aversion to, to soft synth or anything other than just mixing on a computer. And it's probably more for, you know, snobby reasons than, than practical ones. Um, but I, I am very tactile and I am very visual. So I think I, that's what I always say is like why I'm always into external gear. Um, and, but I think, I think, um, what you're talking about might be a good way for somebody who is possibly interested in getting into modular, but doesn't want to make the large investment that it takes to get an actual rack to maybe get their feet wet with the concepts before they decide to, to jump into it. Yeah. Um, and also, you know, that while the investment can be large, you can, I, I think almost every module I own, I've bought used. I'm looking at my rack right now. Uh huh. I'm thinking every module that is here, I purchased used. Yeah. I have bought a couple. And I think it's huge too. When you buy them used, you get them like 20 to 50% off, which is great. Yeah. Um, so speaking of your rack, I'm kind of curious about what, what you've got, what your setup is. Yeah, sure. I, I, I imagine that might be a question. So I, I am, I'm going to read across from left to right, top to bottom. Okay. This will not take very right, long because it's just, uh, it's supposedly 90U, um, 90 HP, excuse me, 90U. That'd be enormous. It's supposedly 90 HP. I like to play with that. It's supposedly 90 HP, but for reasons I don't understand, I actually get 91 out of it, which I enjoy. So it's a monorocket case, and um, uh, it was recently upgraded by an excellent musician in the East Bay to have a much more powerful um, power supply. So yeah, I did. there are two new things in my rack that are new, which are the two power supplies, and they each cost me $15. So um, oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, the power supplies are inexpensive. Um, if you know how to install them, they're very inexpensive. But if you don't, because I'm technologically enabled, they, it actually can cost you to, of course, have them installed. But in any case, I have... Um, uh -huh. So from the left to right, there's two rows uh, of two three U rows of 91 HP each. And there's a few blanks. So anyhow, I have an Expert Sleepers ES8 which I use mm -hmm. to connect to my laptop, um, usually using one of two pieces of software, either VCV Rack or um, CV Toolkit to 
generate material. Um, okay. I haven't used it so much to send material from my lap from my modular back to my laptop, um, and I haven't used it very much with my iPad. But in any case, the ES8 is awesome. Um, then I have a music thing modular radio music, which is uh, a little playback mechanism for playing tracks off uh, a card. There's other things you can do with it as well. There's a chord organ. There's alternate software for it. It's a lot of fun to play with. Um, I have what has long been my favorite, one of my favorite, probably my favorite and most used tools, which is the Sound, Machi Sound Machines UL1. It's a very lo-fi looper. Um, oh, okay. It's superb. Um, it's a little finicky, but it's it's really great. Uh, it's by Sound Machines. Um, then I have a Trigger Man, which is a eight-channel trigger output, um, and it's it's really great. It it, it I, I every once in a while I think about selling it, but then as soon as I put it up online to sell, I then of course rediscover my affection for it and then take off the ad. Um, <laughs> I have a few modules like that. One of the things that's really good about it is that once you set up the triggers um, with one knob, you can then edge them forward and backwards as a group. So you can sort of say you have one going on the one, third, and fifth beat. You just turn this knob a little bit and suddenly it's on the two, fourth, and sixth. And then you can move them forward and backwards and it can be a lot of fun. Um, oh, nice. Uh, yeah. LFOs are something that are essential. So I have the Batumi, um, the four the four LFO thing they have, which is awesome. There's a there's an external little switch that you can get to act, have access to additional controls that I'll probably get soon. But right now I just have the Batumi. Um, then that's from um, XAOC, which I think is pronounced Chaos. But in any case, case, that's the manufacturer. I have a Dixie 2 oscillator. I used to have a lot more VCOs, Classic. but it's, uh, this is a combination LFO VCO. Um, I have uh, an external in from Dopefer, which I use primarily for my electric guitar. Um, I have a, oh, cool. I have a multi-mode filter, the A121 VCF2 from Dopefer, which I love. It's kind of wide and I'll probably get rid of it just to pack more things in here, but I've used it for a long time and I like it a lot. I have a Phonogy. Yeah, I've, I've got a Dopefer as well. Oh, I, I have a, I have the Dopefer, a Dopefer low pass filter. Oh yeah. I just enjoy the hell out of that thing. They're, they're so, so consistent. Yeah. I have, I have, um, some additional modules that I've gotten rid of. I had a, uh, low pass filter that I think I, I sold a while ago to make room for something else. But, um, I have a few modules that I'm, that are on my desk, but are not in my system that I'm going to probably sell soon. I have a phonogene, um, which is the make noise, um, tape loop, uh, simulator. I have a, um, uh, I have another sound machines module, which is, I can't remember what it's actually called. It's the light strip. It's the LS1 light strip, which is just a thin 4 HP um, thing that you can create CV loops with um, and control CV with just with your finger. Um, oh, that sounds interesting. Yeah, it's good. There's, it's really um, a very simple technology, but it, it, it's, it's been useful. Um, then I have just a Pittsburgh outs just to get the audio out. I've got a – and then the bottom row are – are some really exceptional things. I've got um, two ADAC ones. I've got the AD, ADDAC is a, a great company. I've got their their VCA Quintet mixing console, which while indeed it is a mixer for five channels, what's really awesome about it is that it's, also, it's a VCA for all those channels. And you can also do solo and, um, and mute for them as well. So it's an awesome live thing, and it's also just great for um, having five VCAs in a very narrow space. Uh, wow, that sounds great. I have an ER301 sound computer, uh, which I was fortunate to get used because they're hard to get right now. Um, these are made, for those not familiar with them, by, what, as far as I can tell, a one-person shop in Japan. Um, this fellow makes them, and they're, they are sound computers. They actually have two screens on them, and they have a community of people who are contributing ways that you can use these internal modules within them to be triggered from external and internal sources. But the ER301 is a remarkable machine, and I, I, I have just begun to touch the surface of what it's capable of. Um, then I have my – it's funny. I'm going to say, again, my favorite model, but I, really, I, I think if there's any one model that's a signature of what I try to do, it's this eight – it's enormous, but it's this eight-band voltage-controlled fixed filter bank from ADAC. And what it is is it's, it's – essentially, it's a, like the VCA quintet, except it applies itself to just one 
well, you can put two inputs in it, but instead of being VCAs for five different inputs, it's VCAs for eight constituent cross-sections of the spectrum of what's input. So whereas with a VCA quintet, you're, you're applying VCA to, or volume control and amplitude and so forth to, um, to the five different input tracks. In this case, you put one or two audio signals into it, but then you're dividing the audio spectrum into eight bands, and then you're applying LFOs and so forth to those eight bands. And so one of my favorite things to do is to play my guitar through it with some filters on it, and then to do things with various cross sections of the spectrum. Wow, you got you got quite a complicated setup. Was that the last one? Is there more? There's sorry to say, there's four more, but I'll be I'll be brief. On oh no, 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 no. This is actually pretty small um, compared to so many people's. But yeah, there's I have an Envy which I got because I one day I was like, the LFOs always at the bottom. It always get bottoms out. What do I do? And someone's like, you need an offset. So the Envy is really useful for that. Um, uh-huh. And then that's from uh, who makes the Envy? I can't remember. Circuit Abbey. And then I have two modules from the Monome company, which I'm a big admirer of. And I have the Ansible, uh, which is essentially a bunch of software for various external sources. Like I have a I have an old uh, Monome grid, and that that's my primary sequencer. Um, and then I have, though I don't really use sequencers that much, but I, I do enjoy fiddling with it and learning about it. And then I have mm-hmm. what's called a walk, which is exists as an input for two foot pedals. And then I can apply those pedal outputs to various modules, which since I spent a lot of time putting my guitar through my synthesizer, you know, having foot controls is really important. In fact, I've actually been considering getting rid of the phonogene because I really don't use my hands very much. Um, and then one more, I just have another filter. I have the Z2040 from TipTop, um, which is a, another really good filter. Nice. Wow. So you uh, you do not have a uh, a typical setup. I, I I thought we'd have at least one module of overlap, <laughs> but we we do not. Well, I'm at my desk. I do have a sample and hold and a noise source, but I found that I really didn't need them anymore. So I'm going to sell, I have a quantum rainbow that I like a lot, but I'm going to sell that. I have a two HP felt. I have an ADSR from Dopefur that I may be reinstalling and I have a Synthrotech echo. And those are all ones that are on the desk and are likely to be gotten rid of. I just got rid of my Dopefur ADSR. <laughs> um, no, it sounds like you, um, all those sound like, especially the, the last few sound like very deliberate and specific choices, which um, it's funny to see the different types of people that get into modular. I'm definitely the opposite of deliberate and well-researched. I'm, I watched one div kid video and I'm like, I have to have that <laughs> thing. <laughs> and then I get it and I'm like, Oh, I can't make it do what he did. Um, but that's, that's just kind of how I approach it. And it's, it's been fun. I've, I've interchanged a lot of stuff, but I'm, I'm getting there. I, I, re- I love it. I mean, as, as I mentioned, when, when we were corresponding in advance of us talking, you know, I would say that if you could say that two constituent parts of using a modular synthesizer are learning and playing, that while I enjoy playing, I love learning. Like the playing is really enjoyable to me, and I, 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 I sometimes emit things that I'm emit things that I'm enjoying and, and even vaguely proud of. But the learning is what I really dig. And so, to the extent to which I'm, I have the Ansible as a conscious choice. It's not that the Ansible is going to solve a problem for me. The walk solves a problem for me. Having foot pedals is awesome. But the Ansible was really a way just to learn more about the stuff. I mean, I'm really fascinated by the Monome community and by the, the work done by the extended members of that um, productive group. And so, the Ansible, Ansible was a way to, to hands-on experience that. So, when I write about music, my writing is more informed. Okay, final interruption. Um, the last eight minutes of this conversation I had to get rid of due to all of the crackles and pops. It was just, uh, yeah, it wasn't fun to listen to, unfortunately. Um, but Mark's going to be back. We talked a little bit more about doing uh, another another episode soon and, and have a cool idea of how we can incorporate the, the, the Junto group and like the patch challenge. And, and uh, yeah, so stay tuned for that. But I just, uh, at the end of our conversation, I asked Mark for some parting thoughts on just what is it about modular? And uh, he had an interesting response. Sure. Um, I guess um, first I want to say thanks. It's really fun to talk about this stuff, and it's really nice to just block out a, an hour of time to just sit back and chat about it. And second, I really appreciate your um, having been a participant, a participant in the Hunto because um, that that 
that kind of um, extended ongoing participation is 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 wonderful. It's really rewarding to me as someone who who would moderate such a community. And, and lastly, I guess what I'd say about the modular synthesizer that maybe distinguishes it a little bit from guitar pedals, um, though I think there are some guitar pedals that this would also be true of, is that in many ways I follow modules the way I used to follow members of bands. The way I discovered most of the music I came to like, especially at an early age and even a late age, is I would read the liner notes and be like, oh, I like this band and this keyboard player played on this other record by this artist I'm intrigued by, but they already have 20 records at which do I listen to? And I would listen to the one that featured the artist I knew from the previous one. And nowadays, while that still remains the case, I can still enjoy someone I hear on one record and find them on another or listen to their solo work. I also follow instruments like like the the phonogene's a good example, the ER301 is a good example, the monome's a good example. Um, monome is not itself modular, but it 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 becomes part of that through some of these other tools like the Ansible. By following those instruments, and by follow I, I mean setting up Google alerts or um, following tags on hashtags on Instagram and and elsewhere. You can actually find musicians via the tools they use, and I I enjoy that quite a bit. I, it's a great tool. Like once you've found an a module whose philosophical or aesthetic depth um, or just peculiar qualities appeal to you, you can discover a lot of great music by finding other people who who use that specific tool. And you can also learn something about how to use it yourself. Well, there you have it. I want to thank Mark for being on the show. Um, We had such a great talk. And um, Do you guys look for music in similar ways? by uh, setting up Google alerts and hashtags on, on particular instruments. I think that's a, that's a really interesting way to uh, go about finding new stuff. Um, if you want to find out more about just everything that Mark's involved in, the best way to do that is to go to disquiet.com. That's D-I-S-Q-U-I-E-T.com. There you can find uh, information on the Junto group, J-U-N-T-O. Um, if you want to... If you want to push yourself um, creatively, just go on and uh, and uh, explore explore some of those 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 weekly assignments and uh, and and sign up and do one. And and Mark wanted me to to be very clear that don't feel like if you sign up that you have to do it every week. This it's a drop in and drop out type thing. Do it when you can. Um, there's no pressure. He won't, really wants to emphasize that there's no pressure. Um, so you could join and do one and never do it again. Um, but I have a feeling if you joined, you would want to do more. Um, also, if you want to, if you want to read his book, I mean, it's, it's anywhere books are sold. It's the 33 and a third series, which is a a really cool series of books. If you haven't heard of it, um, you can get it on Amazon or yeah, you know how to find books guys. Um, but yeah, thanks for listening. And uh, here is my Disquiet Junto group assignment 333, Half Evil. Thank you.